Hello and namaste guys. I am Dr. Anushruti and I am back with yet another amazing episode. Mobility. Mobility is an integral part of a healthy human being. So to discuss this, today on board, I have Dr. Zach Long, who is a physical therapist and has helped over 50,000 athletes. He has a huge fan and client following. Let's not waste time and directly speak to him. Hello, Dr. Zach. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Well, I would really like to ask the very first question. How do you define mobility as? Also, with this, what do you feel, you know, the physical therapist's approach towards a patient or a client who they are assessing for mobility? Like, what should be their basic approach towards them? Okay, great question. So, <clears throat> mobility to me is a, a big picture word about overall movement, but I think we have to break that down into kind of active mobility and passive mobility, because there are a lot of people that have a lot of flexibility in their muscles or joints, so they can lay on a treatment table and we can move their hip around in a large range of motion, but when you ask them to stand up and actually move their body and control their body through that range of motion that is available, they don't have that ability. So we want to kind of look at it both active and passively with individuals. Um, so that's something that I, I look at quite a bit with people to make sure that they can, you know, actually control all of the motion that they have. In terms of like from a, a rehab physical therapy perspective, it's one of many things that we look at with people. It used to be something that I think we valued a lot more, you know, in the, the rehab professions, we used to be a lot more focused on when an area was injured, we would stretch it quite a bit. And that was like our main force, main treatment tool for so many different things. But I think in a lot of ways, we've shifted our focus now towards thinking more of injuries being when a tissue has been challenged beyond its capacity. So I think of this as like your bank account. If you have spent more money than you are putting into your bank account, you have challenged your income beyond your income's capacity. And so you're going to get into trouble when you run out of money. The same thing can happen to the human body. So I think more so now we, we look at mobility still because it will change how you move a little bit. But overall, there's been a big shift more towards making sure that, that an injured tissue that we build the strength and work capacity of that tissue back up a little bit more. So I think it's a little less important than we used to think it was. It's still important and still part of the big picture. So what are some, you know, great steps to attain mobility? So in, like in order to, let's, let's say you were somebody that does not have good passive mobility. So if you don't have passive mobility, you cannot actively have mobility. So let's say you have very, very stiff ankles and you were trying to squat. If you don't have good ankle mobility, it's going to make it very difficult for you to squat very low. So from opening up range of motion, there are, you know, you could do stretches, you could do foam rolling, you could have somebody do manual therapy to you. Those sort of things kind of fall into like this bucket of temporarily opening up mobility. So when you foam roll for the research would say for maybe like 45 minutes after foam rolling, that muscle or the joints around where you foam rolled might be able to go through more range of motion. So those are great tools to use. The same with stretching. Their stretching tends to do less of changing the actual tissue and more of our tolerance to that tissue being elongated. Um, so they're good to temporarily open up range of motion. But what I really like doing is if we're going to open up some range of motion, then I want to basically teach the body how to 
keep that range of motion. So what I'm going to do is follow that up with loaded movement, because I think that that load and getting strong in that newly opened up range of motion is what's going to help people keep that longer. So that's where after we stretch your ankles, if our goal is to improve your squat, we're going to squat. Or if we want to really elongate your, your calf muscles, um, we're going to do things like heavy, slow, eccentric loading, which has been shown in a number of research studies that when you do slow eccentrics, you actually elongate the muscle at the actual tissues inside of the muscle fiber itself. So things like that, I think, do a better job of helping us improve our overall mobility long-term more than just stretching or foam rolling or any manual therapy technique that a practitioner might do. I want to combine all of those. Okay. Moving on, Dr. Zach, the most common question I believe you have encountered, you would have encountered a lot of times. When is the right time to exercise? Is it early morning, late morning, afternoon, evening, late evening? When is the right time to exercise? I think exercise is such an important part of everybody's lifestyle if they want to maximize their health or function or just general levels of happiness that I don't care when you exercise. Get it done when you are available to. For me personally, I'm fortunate that I have flexibility in my day and I can work out when I feel most prepared to exercise, which is early afternoon. I am not somebody that can wake up at 5 a.m. before I go to work and work out. I'm also not somebody that after I've worked for 10 or 12 hours wants to then work out. So for me, the best time is the middle of the day, but there are certainly times where like today is one of those. Today I've got, after this podcast, I'm jumping into meetings for the rest of the afternoon. So there's no chance of me exercising at my preferred time. So I had to get up a little earlier today and work out when it wasn't ideal, but I still got it done. You've summed it, you know, summed it up very beautifully. Well, with this, I would like to introduce you to one of the favorite segments of my show, where we answer the questions of my followers, patients, and clients. So is okay. Dr. Zach ready to answer the questions? Let's do it. Okay. So the first question for you comes from Karthik Shukla from Chennai. He says, hello, Dr. Zach, how are you? Greetings from India. I'm an aspiring athlete in India. My question is regarding protein powder. Is it necessary to intake such powders and supplements to become a great athlete? Is it linked to my capability or strength training? <clears throat> uh, so is protein powder necessary for uh, improving your athletic performance? Absolutely not. I do believe that the research is pretty clear that for athletes, especially resistance trained athletes, they want to be getting between um, 0.7 and one gram of protein per pound of body weight. Uh, I don't know the exact math on that because I'm in America, so I'm on pounds. 0.7 to one gram of protein per pound of body weight, which is weird because I got grams and pounds over here, but um, that's the number that you want to be getting. I would prefer to, that to be from Whole Foods. But I know for some people, it is hard to get that much protein. And so that's where protein supplementation in terms of a powder might be beneficial. But I don't for sure don't think that it is necessary. I don't think any supplements are necessary. Um, in fact, the only supplements that I really ever recommend to individuals are protein powder if they're struggling with getting that adequate amount of protein intake in. Creatine has a lot of research behind it in terms of its, its assistance in um, human performance and caffeine as well. But beyond that, I don't really do anything in terms of supplementation. Okay. Well, I hope, Karthik, your question is answered. Moving on, we have Ms. Parul Sharma from Mumbai. Have you heard about Mumbai? Yes. 
Okay, great. So the question is, I have bow legs. I really get inspired from people like you and want to become an athlete. Will my bow legs become a barrier in this journey? You know, what's so interesting about different, I even hate to use the word deformities in here. But when you look at a lot of elite athletes, you will notice that they have things that, that differentiate themselves from other human beings considerably. Um, for instance, and I, I don't know the name of this person, but one of the strongest deadlifters ever in history had a massive amount of spine scoliosis, where if you looked at his back from the from posterior, from behind him, instead of his spine being straight up and down, it had like a giant lateral curve into it. And that actually shortened his spine, which put him in better mechanical positioning to perform his athletic movements. So I can't comment about this specifically for you, but I will say that, that so often in sports, you will see elite athletes that have physical attributes that are wildly different than normal human beings. And they just found the sport that leverages their own unique anatomy and lets them be elite. Okay, moving on. The next question comes from Kanak Singh from Haryana. She says, how can I know that I have a great mobility? I do move around and can run for a few meters. How to test if I'm fit or not? So for me, from a mobility perspective, that is going to vary based on your sport. I don't think having more range of motion benefits your sport if you already have enough mobility to get into the positions you need to for your sport. So for instance, if you are... Um, most of the people that I work with are crossfitters and powerlifters and weightlifters. If you have enough ankle mobility to squat down to full depth, do we need to make your calves more flexible? Like you don't get a benefit by getting so flexible that you look like a, a yoga instructor or a Pilates instructor, because that's no longer beneficial to your sport. So I think from a mobility perspective, it's looking at the positions that you have to get into in your sport and having that much mobility and just a hair more so that when you every now and then get out of position in your sport, which is going to happen, you then don't get into a situation where you're taking those tissues beyond the range of motion that they have. But I don't, I'm not somebody that's big on like, everybody has to stretch every day. You always want to be getting more flexible. I don't stretch at all. Um, my mobility is great. So I don't really need to open up more mobility. I have the mobility to squat down below parallel. I have the ability to fully open my shoulders up for an overhead press for a snatch for pull-ups so there's no need for me to get more range of motion i am not a competitive uh pilates athlete i don't know if there's competitive pilates or not um but i'm not a pilates athlete i'm not in yoga so i need as much mobility as needed for my sport and no more great so the last question from one of the patients is vedya prakash from jalandhar he says my lower back hurts a lot after deadlift why does this happen? It is not happening with fellow weightlifters. Why is it happening with me? So there could be a lot of things contributing to that. Um, I do have an article that would probably help that individual out quite a bit. If you search thebarbellphysio.com for top five deadlift mistakes, it'll kind of break through a couple of the technical things to look at in terms of the deadlift. I'll review them now, but that will let you take a deeper dive into it. And it also has some videos and pictures that I think will connect some dots for individuals. But a lot of times in individuals, um, I think of the deadlift 
in terms of from a, like a physics perspective, the further the bar is away from your hip joint, the more difficult it is, the more force that that puts on your back. So think of this as if you were carrying a suitcase or you were carrying groceries. You carry those suitcases right by your side. You don't hold them far out in front of your body. Because if you hold it far out in front of your body, that's going to increase the space, the, the weight is from the center of your body. It's going to put you in a mechanically less efficient position to lift load. So, so much of what I look at in terms of people's deadlift relates to how far the bar is away from their hips. So, for example, um, a lot of individuals don't know how to use their lats, which is one of the muscles in your upper back in their deadlift. And if you aren't engaging your lats in the deadlift, that bar will kind of drift away from your body as you perform the lift. So that's one important thing to think about. If you get set up in a position where either your hips are too high, so your legs are almost straight, or your hips are really low, like you're in the bottom of a squat, both of those will actually position your hips at different parts of the lift further away from the barbell, making you a little less mechanically efficient. You'll see some people that when they start the deadlift, they start in a good position, but they shoot their butt up really fast instead of their butt and shoulders rising at the same rate. That will do the same thing in terms of moving their hips further away from the bar. Um, so those are the main things that I look at. And besides that, I also want to look at somebody's ability to brace their spine when they deadlift and their general low back strength. So sometimes people that have deadlift related back pain just need to do some accessory back strength work so that maybe their maybe their training history has their legs a little bit stronger than their lumbar paraspinals are and so doing some extra work to strengthen their spine can often help them out quite a bit um those are probably the four or five things that i see most common in people with deadlift related back pain great bingo you have answered all the questions of my followers patients i have and i hope you know everyone who would have asked the questions would be having a relief right now that, okay, the questions have been answered by the master himself. Well, moving on, I do have a lot of questions for you. My question starts now. So what do you think are some of the biggest mistakes made during injury prevention or injury rehab? Injury prevention mistakes. Ooh. So I would say the biggest things from an injury prevention standpoint is so often when that term is thrown around, people think about specific exercises to prevent injuries. They think about in the shoulder, trying to strengthen the rotator cuff or for athletes that are in sports prone to hamstring strains, they think of doing things like Nordic hamstring curls have been shown to reduce hamstring strain risk. When I think injury prevention, I actually think more big picture first. So I want to look at somebody's overall training volume and what's happening with that over the course of a season. Because so often injuries just happen when people ask too much of their body too quickly. So let's say you decide that you want to run uh, a half marathon and you immediately go from not doing any exercise at all to trying to run 20 miles a week. That was you asking a whole lot more of your body than what it's been used to doing for a long period of time. And so instead, maybe you should start a walking program that transitions to a 5K program that transitions to a half marathon program rather than all of a sudden asking a ton more of the body. So number one, start with being intelligent about taking good steps forward in your training volume. Number two is going to be your sleep. 
So there's a ton of research studies out there looking at the quantity and quality of your sleep and how much that increases your risk of injury when you don't get good sleep, how much it reduces your performance gains when you don't get good sleep, even things down to the collagen that makes up your muscles and tendons. It doesn't recover and repair as fast when you get poor sleep and then also nutrition. So we already talked about protein intake Absolutely. with one of your followers questions earlier. Um, so we want to make sure that as an athlete, you're getting enough protein to meet the needs of your training, but also your total caloric intake. So a lot of times individuals are under eating, especially in the athletic populations, they're not getting enough calories to adequately, adequately recover from their training. So training is all about this balance between how much you ask the body to do and how much it recovers and making sure that's in line so that you maximize your fitness gains and you um, minimize your risk of injury. So I like to think big picture more than like the small exercise stuff more commonly. Then in terms of mistakes made, do you want to ask any questions about that before I jump to injury rehab? No, 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 please continue. Okay. From an injury rehab perspective, I think there are the two biggest mistakes that I see are, are number one, we need to really accurately track what things bother your symptoms and how much they bother your symptoms. So for example, uh, in the question we asked, was asked earlier by the individual whose back hurts after deadlifts, what I would want to track with that individual is when they deadlift, how heavy do they have to deadlift for how many sets and reps before their back becomes irritated? And then how long does it stay mad after the workout? So maybe let's say that they, they lift 150 kilograms and it's completely pain-free. Then they jump up to 170 kilograms for a set of five. And now their back pain is a four out of 10 and it takes it 30 minutes to decrease. I want to write down those so that we have something that we can track very accurately over the next few weeks and months to ensure that the things that we're doing are actually changing that. So if we, if that individual starts to do some extra back strength work to try to bring up maybe some back strength, which was one of the examples that we talked about earlier, what we should see is after they do that for a month, it might not be that deadlifts are completely pain-free, but if back strength was related to why that individual's back hurt, it now should be that, that 170 kilograms that created four out of 10 pain that lasted for 30 minutes should now be that at 170 pounds, it doesn't create that much pain or it doesn't last that long or it takes more weight to create that same amount of pain. That way we're not guessing if we're actually doing the right thing or not. We're taking a really intelligent and scientific approach to our rehab. You would never do a, a training program and never occasionally test out what you're doing. Like if your goal is to deadlift more weight and you're not injured, you would never just randomly go in and deadlift, not recording your workouts to make sure that every week you're getting a little bit better. The same goes from a rehab perspective. Let's make sure we're accurately tracking that. And then the second thing from an injury rehab perspective um, is kind of multi multiple parts, but it's people that just immediately rest. And I'm, I'm not a big fan of resting when you have an injury for a multitude of reasons. Number one, when you have an injury, you're going to have inflammatory processes that happen that are normal and are a good part of healing, but you also at times get stuck in situations where that inflammation just hangs out in an area too long. And if we don't exercise, we don't get our heart rate up, we don't pump blood into that joint, that muscle, that tendon that's irritated, 
we're not going to do a whole lot of moving that inflammation in and out of there. So a lot of times you find individuals that actually stay a little bit more in pain because they don't exercise. The other thing that happens when we stop exercising is let's say your let's say your ham you strained your hamstring. If we completely stop all lower body training, not only are we delaying that hamstring healing, but now your glutes are getting weaker, your calves are getting weaker, your quads are getting weaker. And when we go back to actually training and exercising, we've not only lost some hamstring strength, but everything else around it is also weaker. And I believe that most musculoskeletal injuries happen as a result of us asking more of our body than it was prepared for. And so now we've detrained all of these other tissues. And so now we're opening up the door for those other tissues to potentially get irritated long-term. So instead, we don't want to not rest. We want to make sure we're not doing activities that are such high level that they're making our symptoms worse. But if we're tracking our symptoms accurately, we'll also know if what we're doing is too much or if it's right on track. And that will let us let a, set a groundwork down for staying active and then doing the right exercise to build those tissues back up to their normal strength and hopefully beyond their normal strength because that tissue was not strong enough or it wouldn't have gotten injured in the first place. Very well answered. Well, last but not the least, Dr. Zach, what is Dr. Zach's biggest piece of advice for the new set for the next generation of physical therapists on the way? So I know you interviewed my... Um, one of my business partners and mentors, Jeff Moore, a couple of weeks ago. So I, I work for Jeff Moore um, at his continuing education company, the Institute of Clinical Excellence, and then we're business partners in our physical therapy clinic. And Jeff Moore always talks about that physical therapists and medical providers as a whole need to lead from the front. We talk to our patients all the time about the importance of eating properly, sleeping properly, and exercising. And as medical providers, we need to set that example for people. We need to actually be doing those things ourselves to inspire our own patients. So they can't come into our clinic and see donuts in our clinic or um, you know, sweets and junk food. They need to come into our clinic and see that we are ourselves eating healthy food. When they look at our clinic on social media, they need to see that us as practitioners are out there exercising ourselves. Those sorts of things will inspire them to actually follow the recommendations that they're making. My, my favorite example of this is my niece. So she was four years old and um, my niece's grandfather has been smoking four packs of cigarettes. He's 75 years old. He's been smoking four packs of cigarettes for the last 60 years of his life. And he has had every doctor he's ever seen tell him that he needs to stop smoking. He has seen all the commercials. He's seen all the statistics on how bad smoking is for you. He doesn't care about those statistics though. Statistics and data does not change people's behavior. Absolutely. What changes people's behavior is when they're inspired. So my little niece at four years old told her grandfather that she did not want him to hold her because he smelled bad. Oh, yeah. And at 75 years old, he quit smoking that instance. He didn't use... The, the Nicorette patches, he didn't use gum. He just needed to be inspired. I, I honestly don't know how physiologically that was possible, that after that many years of smoking, he could just stop like that. It's it's amazing. It, but it again, was it's not the, the data, it's the, the inspiration. 
Yeah. And that's what people need. And we need to lead from the front as medical providers. That was so great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Zach, for joining in and taking out time from your schedule to speak to us. We have come to an end of the episode. I believe, Dr. Zach, you would have enjoyed speaking to us as much as my audience and I had listening to you. I did. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Well, with this, this is your reminder to straighten your back, have a glass of water, have a good sleep and move. We'll see you in the next episode. Till then, goodbye. Take care.